Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Now, David is going to preach to us this morning. Just the four and a half hours, though, yeah? We welcome you. Thank you. You have full brevity to bring exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. And we are receptive. We won't fall asleep. Lord, give us a teachable spirit so that we can receive that which you poured into David today. And bless him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Deji. Um, I was thinking about my topic today, and to be honest, I could literally talk all day. So, so uh, I could challenge you there, that, that, Deji, but I'm not going to. Um, not, not all day. Um, but I was thinking about, I don't really know what the title of this message is, but I guess it's about walking with Jesus or journeying with Jesus. Um, you know, um, the world's a crazy place that we live in, isn't it? It's a really crazy place. Um, and I was at a party yesterday afternoon, and I was talking to a bunch, bunch of guys who are atheists, and um, one of them said to me, like, but Dave, how is it then that God doesn't just intervene in this crazy place? And I said, he's going to. He promises he's going to. You know, he's going to. He, and, and actually, on an individual level, he does all the time, but, but you have to be open to it, don't you? So, so um, we're in the process of undergoing huge shifts in our nation and across the world, we see that. The birth pangs, which Jesus talked about in, in Mark 13, 8, you know, he talks about this, these will be his birth pangs, will get more pronounced and more frequent as contractions do. You know, um, we were talking to a um, midwife the other day, uh, you know, and obviously she would know that birth pangs get more frequent and more pronounced, you know, and any of us who have been at the birth of a child, know that as well. Um, so these birth pangs relate to conflict, you know, environmental catastrophes, and also opposition to the way of life that's central to the gospel, and indeed, which is, which is um, just the very fabric of society, the stability of society. These are indeed birth pangs that we're in, but Jesus is still on the throne that's what I want to say. Jesus is still on the throne. And it says, Hebrews 13, verse 8, says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus, he's, he's not looking down from heaven in a panic. You know, he's not looking down from heaven going, oh my gosh, look at this. To the Father, oh, what can we do? I don't know. You know, that's not Jesus, you know. Um, and amidst all this craziness, the, the, the thing is that we are, we are followers of Jesus and we're on a journey with him. And I guess it's uh, what I want to talk to you about is, you know, not settling, but keeping on that journey. Um, and it's difficult at the moment, I think, for many believers in the West because, you know, we've been too comfortable. You know, we've been really comfortable for, you know, I mean, my grandfather fought in the Second World War, you know, but since, since the Second World War, this nation hasn't seen war, hasn't seen conflict or strife in the natural and we've got a better lifestyle, you know, than we ever have, um, you know, previously. You know, if you think back to your grandparents' generation, 
What did they have that we don't have? It's mad, isn't it? But we just kind of so easily take these things for granted. And then what happens is we, become, we, we, we get some personal discomfort and we can focus on that rather than on the light of Jesus. And so we can be torn as believers between our, per, our own personal comforts and what the Holy Spirit has for us on, in so many ways, you know. And, um, and yet Jesus, the light of the gospel, shines brighter in the darkness. We must always remember that the light of the gospel shines more brightly in the darkness. And the kingdom of God is coming more powerfully than, and, and in a more pronounced way than perhaps we expect. Because again, our expectations of what Jesus is going to do in this nation are generally quite low. Let's be honest, you know. But, for example, a month ago, Jackson, my son, he went to Norfolk um, to, do some, to do some evangelism training in a week-long event run by CFAN, Christ for All Nations. Okay, so he was there for a week. There were about 30 of them there, between 18. They were all aged between about 18 and 30. And they were all people who have a kind of heart for evangelism. And they were, they were having some evangelism training. And so they went, while they were there, just two afternoons, they went out into Norwich. And in two afternoons, in two outreach sessions, 311 people gave their lives to the Lord. Okay? Two outreach sessions, two afternoons. Okay? Who says Jesus can't do it again? You know? And one of the local guys there was a pastor, and he now has... 311 people to follow up. <laughs> Can you imagine that, you know? Because CFAN do it properly, right? They do it properly. They have the card. You fill the card in. You know, you get the details. You follow it up, that, that kind of thing. So um, it's just an amazing thing. That, that, that guy, we need to pray for that guy to be able to pursue and integrate those 311 people into the local church. Amazing, eh? Amazing. So we simultaneously face discomfort in the natural and as there is this shaking of the world and then we have these huge opportunities for the harvest at the same time and we choose how to respond in each of those circumstances every circumstances we we face every circumstance we face we we have a choice as to how we respond to that and that's about navigating each situation and, and essentially what, we're, what we've been talking as a church and as a ministry about a lot, I suppose, is, is essentially living from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, living from that place. And surrendering our ways, leaving the distractions behind, and learning his ways. And we get to, we get to choose this every single day, numerous times. Are we going to follow Jesus in this? Or what's the Holy Spirit saying in this? What's the Holy Spirit saying in that? So that's um, our challenge, really. Um, and for some time now, the Lord has been speaking to me from the book of Genesis, and particularly from the story of Abraham. And today, I know that, that Deji talked about Abraham recently, and David talked about Abraham recently, but I'm going to talk about Abraham and, as well. And I'm going to talk about Abraham and Lot, because there's, a, there's a, a message in that, I think, about whether we carry on or whether we settle. So Hebrews 11, 8 to 10, let's start there. It says this about Abraham. It says, Urged on by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went forth to a place which, he, which was destined, he was destined to receive as an inheritance. And he went, although he did not know or trouble his mind about where he was to go. Prompted by faith, he dwelt as a temporary resident in the land which was designated in the promise of God. Though he was like a stranger in a strange country, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he was waiting expectantly and confidently, looking forward to the city which has, its firm, has fixed and firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I mean, we could talk about that passage, like I say, all day, and there'd be more to come. But I just want to take a couple of, one, one particular thing about this passage is what, why does it mention about them living in tents? Why does it mention about them living in tents? And if you think by the time Abraham died, they did live together. We always, I always kind of, when, when I read Genesis, it's easy to think about Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, but they were all living together in tents. You know, when Abraham died, Isaac was 65, Jacob would have been 15. You know, so, so they're all living together in tents. The humble tent, you know. For us, it's a kind of few poles and a layer of fabric. I don't know if anyone likes camping here, you know, a little bit. Yeah, some people really shake their heads as to say, no way. Yeah. But one experience reminds me about how the tent is the most basic of dwellings. And I was thinking back about this the other day when I was, when I was thinking about camping. And it was this, you know, I don't know why to this day I decided to do German A-level, but I did, okay? And as part of my German A-level, my parents thought it would be a really good thing to have a pen friend in Germany. And so, so I had that as well. And it was... It was um, and so they then decided that to improve my German, which obviously wasn't very hard to do, um, they would send me to Germany to, um, to do an exchange with this, well, with this guy. And so I went to see this guy, Klaus, and um, we decided to go cycle touring around northern Germany for about a week or something like that. And I remember that we, we, we had these kind of not particularly great German bikes um, that were quite heavy and we piled them up with stuff, including a tent, and we went on our way. And I don't remember where we stayed most of the time, but I do remember one night. And it was this night where we decided, we, we'd been riding all day, we decided to, to put our tent up in a kind of by this woodland in the middle of nowhere, quite underpopulated area of northern Germany. And we pitched on the edge of this, uh, on the edge of this kind of piece of woodland, all good, you know, get in the tent, Class goes to sleep, he's snoring peacefully. And then in the middle of the night, he's still snoring, of course. I'm lying there in the quiet, and then suddenly the most blood-curdling blood of noises started right outside the tent. I mean, shrieks and squeals and groans of a pitch that made my ears hurt. Something that sounded very angry and upset was literally an arm's length away from me. It's pitch dark. I'm in the woods, in the middle of the countryside, camping without permission, in a different country... There's no tech in those days, no mobile phone. I mean, who's going to find my body? Between me and my snoring pen friend and the noise was just that thin layer of fabric. And the noise continued for what seemed like hours, though I'm not sure how long it actually was. And I realize now that I live in London, not the countryside, that it was probably foxes. Yeah, um, it was foxes, you know, when they make that crazy squealing noise. Um, but at the time, I lived in the countryside, as I say, and you don't see foxes in the countryside. You see them in towns. Um, so I, I, I was just really aware of that, of that small gap. You know, I was an arm's length away from whatever was outside, and all I had between me and it was this thin layer of fabric and a few poles. I wasn't even armed, you know. Um, <laughs> and I think the significance of the tent... For Abraham was its portability. I doubt it was as thin and small as our tents are now. Um, but it meant that when, when God told Abraham to move, he could move. 
he could respond to what Abraham, what, what God asked him to do. So the tent here speaks of the reliance on the Lord and responsiveness to the Lord that the patriarchs had. You know, the reliance on him and, his, and the responsiveness to him. And that both, both of those things obviously speak of relationship with the Lord. And in the last couple of years, we've faced many outward circumstances which have forced us into the secret place where we can rely on the Lord and respond to him. And it's in the secret place that we surrender our will and become more flexible. The new wineskins that Jesus mentioned that we need to be. You know, Smith Wigglesworth, towards the end of his ministry, somebody asked him, you know, what's the secret of your ministry? And he said, he said one thing, he said, at the slightest whisper of the Holy Spirit, I turn aside. You know, he's so attentive to what God says. That's amazing. But we know that when God called him, Abraham actually lived in a, in a culture in a place called Haran. And archaeologists in the 1920s actually um, excavated Haran, and they found that it was a place with big dwellings. You know, a middle-class home in Haran would have t 10 to 20 rooms. It, it was um, a developed place. They had, they had mathematics, including algebra. You know, they were, they were very developed people who lived in Haran. And so, so Abraham left this kind of town with these dwellings that were very big for a lifestyle dwelling in a tent and moving around. And th this picture of daily reliance on God and responsiveness to him is um, what Abraham brings. He was able to be responsive whenever the call of God was on his life and wherever it was to take him and, and his family. And he prophetically walked through the land that his descendants were to inherit, building altars and calling on the Lord. So I'd like to look at Genesis 13, um, if I may. I think we should read some scripture. So I'm going to just find Genesis 13 and actually read it to you. Um, just so we're exactly clued up about what's going on. So verse 1, so Abraham went up out of Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south country. Now Abraham was extremely rich in livestock and in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the south, the country of Judah, the Negev, as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, where he built an altar at first. And there Abraham, Abraham called on the name of the Lord. But Lot who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to nourish and support them so they could dwell together, for their possessions were too great for them to live together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite were, living, were dwelling there in the land, making fodder more difficult to obtain. So Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife, I beg of you, between you and me, or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are relatives." Is it not the whole land? Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself, I beg of you, from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you choose the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot looked and saw that everywhere, the, everywhere the Jordan Valley was well watered. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it was all like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and he traveled east, so they separated. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the Jordan Valley, and, and moved his tent as far as Sodom, and dwelt there. But the men of Sodom were wicked and exceedingly great sinners against the Lord. 
The Lord said to Abram after Lot had left him, Lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For the land which you you see I will give to you and to your posterity forever. And I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count the dust of the earth, then could your descendants also be counted. Arise, walk through the land, the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it to you. Then Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelt among the oaks or terebinths of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and built there an altar to the Lord. So, Abraham could, effect, could respond effectively to the call of God to walk through the land because he dwelt in a tent, as I said. I don't think God's calling us to live in tents. Um, many of you will be pleased about that. But to what extent are we ready to respond to the call of God in our daily lives? That's the challenge. Our lives are like the altars that Abraham built, and every altar requires some sacrifice. Abraham is called here to walk through the land. In many places, he builds altars and calls on the name of the Lord. In a sense, both seeking God and inviting God into specific geographical circumstances. And by doing so, he's laying claim to it, without the inhabitants of the land even knowing what he's doing. You know, Genesis 3, 14 to 13, 14 to 17, it says, The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had left him, Lift, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for I, the land you see I will give to you and your posterity forever. I wonder what this means for you personally and for us as a church, to walk through the length and breadth of our land and receive it as an inheritance. What are future generations going to spiritually inherit from us. Geographically speaking, what street or road do you regularly travel down and lay lay a claim on for God? And I don't think this is presumptuous, you know, us doing this. The time is coming, it says in Habakkuk 2.14, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So, you know, it all belongs to Jesus anyway, but we can particularly lay claim. You know, I'll give you a small example Last year, Philippa and I were in Cornwall, and we stayed in an Airbnb that was attached to a small hotel, which had the air of having seen better days, but had huge potential to it. It was in a lovely location. And one morning, walking around the garden, I felt the Holy Spirit talk to me about this, its potential for the kingdom of God. And so I prayed about it. I, I looked at the hotel and laid claim for it, for God's purposes in the future. I was in a tiny way, like Abraham, traveling as I traveled through the land, putting this spiritual stake in the ground, for God's kingdom in that place. I'm, I'm looking forward to going back there and you know, staying when it's a conference center. Um, our nation has a rich spiritual, spiritual heritage. For example, last night I was at this friend's party in the road adjacent to where the first black-led church in Britain was founded in 1901 by the Reverend Thomas Kwame Brem Wilson. On, the, on my journey here this morning, I passed the road in Loughborough Junction where it's recorded that the first person from the Pen- Pentecostal movement in Britain spoke in tongues. That's in Loughborough Junction. And I passed a site um, which in November 1922, um, the Jeffreys brothers, George and Stephen Jeffreys, um, moved to an abandoned Methodist church in Clapham and started preaching, and there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit between Clapham and Brixton. Then I passed the church on the common where Wilberforce um, and the Clapham sect fought the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. 
and then I came into this road, and down this road, there's another church just next door, and there's another ministry beyond that. And I wondered who laid a claim to this particular road in a different generation, because I think somebody did. I don't know, perhaps it was my great-grandmother. I don't know whether she had faith, but I found out recently some crazy family history. I knew both, my, both grandparents on my father's side of the family came from Battersea. But what I didn't realize was that my great-grandparents actually lived two, at less than 200 meters from this building. And she was a housemaid literally around the back of this building, about 100 meters away. She was married at the local church, St. Peter's, which is just up there. I don't know what her prayer was for her descendants, was it to do with having a heart for young people? I don't know. But we walk by faith and not by sight. We can literally walk through London, communing with Holy Spirit and asking him, what is it you see here, Holy Spirit? What do you want to see here? What is it we should be laying claim to in this, for the kingdom in this area, in this community, over here? Okay, let's move back to Genesis 3, 13, 14. It says... We've looked briefly at Abraham walking through the land, but what of Lot? Genesis 13, 14 says, The Lord said to Abraham after Lot left him. In Genesis 12, when Abraham left Haran, he took his nephew with him. And Abraham and Sarah, we know they couldn't have children, and they definitely felt love for, for, for Lot, who was orphaned, you know, his nephew. And perhaps in a sense, Lot became like a surrogate child for Abraham. And Sarah? And it's interesting because at this point, Lot has to separate from Abraham, and actually, it's the Lord's will because as soon as Lot separates, then God speaks to Abraham and says, You know, now go and look at the land. And so I wonder, what, what is our lot, personally speaking? What is our lot? Is there something which, which is our substitute for the plans of God? Because that's what Lot was probably for Abraham. And Abraham was honourable towards Lot and gave him the choice as to where he decided to go. And I want to look at a couple of details from Genesis 13 about that choice, about, about Lot's um, choice. 13, 10, 10 to 13. And Lot looked and saw that everywhere the Jordan Valley was well watered. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it was all like the Garden of the Lord. Then Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and he travelled east, so they separated. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the Jordan Valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom and dwelt there. The next verse, verse 13, tells us, but the men of Sodom were wicked and exceedingly great sinners against the Lord. So two points I want to just bore out. What he saw enticed him, which was not altogether unreasonable because it was ideal grazing land, green, well watered. But you can see the pull of the city of Sodom on Lot. There's a pull towards it. It says that, Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley. And having chosen the land, he then pitched his, pitches his tent right near to Sodom. This is the beginning of the snare that Lot gets himself into. And we have to be careful where we pitch our tents, so to speak. Where do we pitch our tents? And I want to think further about where Lot dwells, because this is an important aspect of the story, I think. Consider his dwellings. When they separate... Abraham and Lot both live in tents. They're both, they both have big herds. They're nomadic. But at some point between here and the next chapter, Lot settles. In the next chapter, you have that battle between the four kings and the five kings where um, Sodom gets kind of taken over and everyone gets captured. And then Abraham has to go and rescue Lot. And 
he rescues the other people as well. And at this point, you see the extent of Abraham's wealth and the way he runs his household. He has 318 trained men in his household. That tells you something about how he runs his household, right? By contrast, Genesis 14:12 says, they also took Lot who dwelt in Sodom. So Lot no longer dwells in a tent outside of Sodom. He dwells in Sodom in a building, a house. And then we don't hear mention of Lot in the story of Abraham until many years later in chapter 19. So probably, I don't know, I mean, this is when Abraham's 99 and he left Haran when he was 75. So maybe it's kind of 20 years have passed or something like that. Um, And in, in Genesis 19, we obviously have the judgment of Sodom and the angels go into Sodom to destroy it. And Lot is sitting in the city gate where where when he sees them come through the city gate. And that's significant because the city gate is a place of influence. And in in that culture, it's a place of social transaction and governance. And as the angels arrive, Lot acts honorably and does everything in his power to protect these men. He invites them into his house. He prepares food, unleavened bread, interestingly. But Lot's position in Sodom is scorned by the inhabitants of the city. You know, when the men the angels, ask him if he has family and tell him to warn them to get out of the city. He tries to go and persuade his future sons-in-law to leave the city, but they laugh at him. They think he's joking. He tries to persuade the crowd to protect the men, but they despise him and turn on him. You know, this fellow came here to live here, temp- came in to live here temporarily, but now he presumes to be our judge. So all of that effort that Lot had put in to gain influence was just scorned very quickly. But it would be easy to be judgmental about Lot, wouldn't it? I mean, it's easy to be judgmental about him if it wasn't that he's mentioned in 2 Peter. And Peter says this of him in 2 Peter 2, 6 to 8. He says, And God condemned to ruin and extinction the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing them to ashes, and set them forth as an example to those who would be ungodly. And he rescued righteous Lot, greatly worn out and distressed by the wanton ways of the ungodly and lawless. For that man living there among them, tortured his righteous soul every day with what he saw and heard of their unlawful and wicked deeds. So what do we conclude about Lot from the account, from the account of him in Genesis and Peter's synopsis of him? What I think we could say is righteous Lot sought influence in the city of Sodom, but he went about it in a rather human way and not a spiritual one. You know, He worked from the flesh rather than the spirit. He married while he was there, and he had two daughters. Isn't it interesting that we don't know their names? We don't know their names. It's fascinating that Jesus then talks about, you know, of all the, I think there are 140 women mentioned in the Bible, and Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Not any of the other women. Remember Lot's wife. Interesting. Lot's wife becomes an example um, given by Jesus who who sought to hold on to her old life rather than receiving the salvation that God was offering her. You know, remember what Lot's wife, he warns about this temptation, Jesus himself warns about this temptation to settle and become more focused on our surroundings than our relationship with him. I think personally that Lot's story is probably the most tragic of any righteous person in scripture. You know, as they make their escape from the city, Lot lingers, his wife looks back, he bargains with the angels, as to his destiny, and ends up living in a place called Zor, which incidentally means small, you know. So Lot, let's think about it. 
Think back. Lot was the man who separated from Abraham because of the size of the flocks and herds that he had. And yet now he runs out of the city with angels, pull him out of the city, literally holding his hand and his, his daughter's hands. And he has no flocks, he has no herds. He ends up in a place whose, whose name means small. And from there, because of fear, he can't dwell there. So he, he ends up in a cave in the mountains where his daughters end up deceiving him and getting pregnant by him. And their offspring become a hindrance to Israel wherever we see them. His final dwelling place is a cave. And that, in those times, as we know from Abraham's story, is a place where you bury the dead. So, so, so that's the last we see of Lot. Lot, in a sense, is like the person mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3, whose work is burned up at the judgment, and who himself is saved, but only as one who passed through fire. I'd love to stand up here today and tell you story after story of friends who I know whose ministries are growing stronger and stronger in the Lord, and there are many of them. But I equally could tell you of others who have once had faith and currently don't profess it. Or perhaps they're saved, but they work as Lot does from a place of the flesh. And it would be easy to be judgmental. But how does it happen? Often gradually, the pitching of the tent next to bad influence. That may be. In every single case of somebody who slides backwards, drifts, there must have been a point when they got up in the morning and instead of opening the word of God, reading it and responding to what the Holy Spirit was saying, they just got on with the day. That's easily done and there's no condemnation in that. You know, it happens from time to time. But then a few days go by and then things drift. And then their brothers and sisters in Christ were not close to them and didn't realize. And then their sense of belonging to the body of Christ became vaguer. And suddenly it happened, the drift. You know, the reality of Christ eclipsed by close circumstances. But what of us who actively pursue, pursue the Lord? I don't think there's anyone in here today who doesn't actively pursue the Lord. I think it helps when we're attentive to those who perhaps have pitched their tent, tents in an inappropriate place. You know, that feeling of isolation that they have can quickly lead to discouragement and then disconnection from the body of Christ. That's why Hebrews 7.25 says that we should not give up meeting together. Um, I feel like I'm a teacher at school in registration in the morning telling people not to be late. When, when you, you should never do that because they're the people who are early, you know. <laughs> But the people who aren't here, we shouldn't give up meeting together. It's important not to. The walk of faith requires a sense of belonging in the family of God, of course. So, so what I would ask you this week is if there is anyone specific that the Lord would lay on your heart to contact and to encourage, who perhaps you haven't seen for a while. Even following Jesus, wherever we get to with the Lord, there'll always be this temptation to settle. There's always a temptation to settle. But the Lord is calling us each into absolute reliance on him. And he uses our lives to the extent we're surrendered to him. You know, Tommy, Tommy Tenney says this, God loves the smell of burning flesh. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> we're given such a picture of, of not settling, the importance of not settling for less um, in the story of Lot. As I come towards the end of this talk, I just want to touch upon one barrier. Perhaps it's a curiously English barrier, um, which can hinder our responsiveness to God. And that is this thinking that our human limitations and frailties get in the way of God. We may think, well, with this issue or this situation that I have, how can I be effective to him? 
But actually, if we feel fragile, frail, and weak in ourselves, we're in good company with the Apostle Paul, who talks at length about this in 2 Corinthians. He points out that our frailty actually ensures that people know that our message is entirely God working in and through us. As we step out in our frailty, he uses us. I'm fascinated that Paul uses this metaphor as a tent for the, for the human body, as a metaphor for the human body, the fragility of us as believers who are passing through our current situations in this world on the way to a completely sure eternal future, this place of incomparable blessing and favor. And so I'm just going to read a little bit from 2 Corinthians 4, um, 4.17-5.1, and it says this, For our light momentary affliction, this slight distress of the passing hour, is ever more and more abundantly preparing and producing and achieving for us an everlasting weight of glory, beyond all measure, successively surpassing, sorry, excessively surpassing, surpassing all comparisons and calculations, a vast and transcendent glory and blessedness never to cease. Since we consider and look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are visible are temporal, brief and fleeting, but the things that are, unseen, are invisible are deathless and everlasting. Verse 5.1. For, for we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have from God a building, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. There's a parallel here to, here to what Hebrews tells us about Abraham. This is the same future that Abraham himself was waiting expectantly and confidently for. He was looking forward to the city which was fixed and f- with fixed and firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Our faith journeys have a sure destination. Our real home is not on this earth. We're passing through. And this is the challenge of things. Pastor Rod was talking about this on Wednesday night for a while. You know, what seems to us to be the most permanent of things, our circumstance and our surroundings, is actually the most temporary. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? You know, everything around us. And as we pass through on our journey, it's important for us to maintain our faith like Abraham, to always be responsive to where God calls us to and how he gets us there. This is this process of journeying. We focus on the destination, but we never lose sight of being... um, Attentive to the journey, you know, not settling for what he has for us, you know. There's so many situations and circumstances in life that we face where we have an opportunity to go, actually, that's not what God says. <laughs> actually, that's not what the word says. But the temptation is, is so often to go, oh, yeah, but this is what the doctors say. Or, oh, yeah, but this is what such and such says. Or this is what the world says. But, but, but. The story of Abraham just tells us, you know, we walk by faith. We don't settle. We don't settle for what the doctors say. We don't settle for what, you know, for what the lawyers say. You know, we don't settle for those other situations where we're like, you know, it doesn't look like it's possible because we're moving on and we're moving on with Jesus. Our journey is a journey basically to deeper relationship with God and revelation of him, of knowing Jesus and getting to know him more. You know, Bill Johnson says, if you don't live by revelation, you don't live. That's the whole journey, the faith walk, focusing more and more on that of that which is eternal, not that which is temporary. We press forward. We're not looking back as Lot's wife did. We press on to know him. In that journey, our awareness of our fragility, I'm sure it will become increasingly 
increasingly, we'll become increasingly aware of it, but also of his power and might within us. That's our humility. Our future hope grows within us the more we dwell in Scripture and take it into our hearts and obey it. And as I was preparing this talk, I want to just end on this Scripture that um, comes from Paul when he was in a prison cell, which I don't think he could even stand up in. You know, it was a very small prison cell. And yet he wrote Philippians in that cell. And he says this in Philippians 3.14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize to which God in Christ Jesus is calling us upward. And so let's press on, brothers and sisters. Amen. Careful you pitch your tent. Yes, yes. Well, that's it for today. If you want more, you have to come back next week. Yeah. Well, bless you um, in the coming week. Meditate on what you've heard today. Um, the Lord is lifting us higher. And you know what? That church, that bride, blemish without spot, that's us. He's going to do it, you know, as long as we yield to the Holy Spirit and go to school. Holy Spirit school days. All right, bless you and have a great week. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 